It's good to see you. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is our living hope? So thankful for that. If you have your Bibles, turn to the third chapter of Titus. We're going to finish Titus today. Next week, uh, you'll be privileged to be able to hear David Norman Jr. preach, who just received his Ph.D. not too long ago. He's going to be here in the pulpit next Sunday. I will be here. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I've not been here when he's preached, so I'm looking forward to that. He's just happens to be in town, I think because it's uh, getting real close to opening weekend for deer season, so he's going to be in town, and he uh, told me about it, and I asked him if he would share the pulpit, and he graciously agreed to do so next Sunday, so I'm looking forward to that. So this morning, as we look at Titus 3, let me kind of begin to share with you something that's going to show my age, but it's going to take you right to where you need to be to understand Titus 3. So if you're old enough and you remember watching cartoons when you were growing up, you'll remember a character named Dudley Do-Right. All the old people just laughed and shook their heads and all the you know, middle-aged, younger people were going, who are you talking about? Well, Dudley Do-Right, when cartoons were just cartoons on Saturday morning and you know, we didn't have all the fancy stuff like everybody has now, Dudley Do-Right was a Canadian mounted police, uh, and he was the, the quintessential picture of what you thought a, a policeman, a mounted policeman should look like. He wore a red jacket, had on the blue pants, had on the, the cool-looking uh, hat, and had this blonde, wavy hair, and he always went around doing good things. Because that's what he was. I mean, his name was Dudley Do-Right. And so he always did right things. He was always saving this lady named Nell. Nell was always in, tr in trouble. And the person who was persecuting her had the greatest name. Anybody remember the bad guy's name in Dudley Do-Right? Oh, who said that? You were exactly right. Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> what a great name, isn't it? You would never want to name your kids Snidely, would you? I mean, gosh, why would you ever do that? Snidely Whiplash was the bad dude who was always grabbing Nell, tying her up, and putting her on the train tracks, waiting for the train to come. And Dudley Do-Right would come in and swoop in and save her just in the nick of time. Oh man, I love that cartoon. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great cartoon. It really has something to do with what we're talking about this morning. If you're in Titus, the third chapter, my Bible, I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV. It's a little bit different. I usually am out of, uh, sorry, I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning. I like the Holman Christian, they, they call it HS, uh, HCSV. Uh, but there's also a translation out called the ESV that I like a lot. And you know that I preach a lot out of the NIV. I, I uh, performed a funeral service this past uh, Wednesday morning for a very dear friend of mine's sister in Houston. And I left my Bible there that I always preach out of. So it's in the mail on the way to me. So it's my favorite Bible. It's an elephant skin Bible that was given to me by missionaries in uh, Tanzania. And so I love preaching out of that Bible, but today I, I've switched. And at the front, 
of this chapter 3, it's, it's, uh, the, this chapter is titled, The Importance of Good Works. That's what the HCSB uh, kind of said as, as a uh, chapter title, The Importance of Good Works. And what I want to share with you this morning is how important it is for us as believers to be like Dudley Do-Right, to, to go about doing good things. Uh, to be somebody, when people see us, they see somebody who's doing good works. Now, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble preaching about good works. Because when you preach about good works, it, it's always going to reverberate that we're doing something to earn our salvation. And I will show you in this passage where Paul, when he writes this letter to Titus, explicitly says that you are not doing good works to earn your salvation. It has nothing to do with that. And you need to hear me say that. Even though we're going to talk about doing good works today, you need to hear me say that good works does not lead to your salvation. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because of His great grace, and because of His great mercy, and because of everything He did on the cross of Calvary, then you should want to do good works. It's the opposite. Not we do good works because we hope that Jesus might be merciful to us. Absolutely not. The truth is Jesus has already been merciful to you. He's already been graceful to you. He's already been gracious to you. And because of that, you should want to do good works. Now let me back up just a little bit before we launch in to chapter 3, and I share with you just a few things about doing good works. Let me launch into kind of where we have been in Titus. For You see, we, we've been there for three weeks. I, I kind of want to catch you up, especially maybe if this is your first Sunday or you missed a Sunday. So let me bring you up to speed. Over the past three weeks, we've gained a whole lot of knowledge about this little book called Titus that very few people ever preach out of. And what we've discovered is that Paul was trying to convey to Titus the importance of loving on the church in Crete that was struggling. Uh, the church in Crete was kind of like a spring, spring break party church. We shared that with you last week. They were doing lots of crazy things, and they weren't doing very many good things. And so on a missionary journey, Paul dropped Titus off and said, here you go, this is yours to deal with. Now, Titus wasn't all that excited about it, but he said that he would do it, and he did. You, you see throughout these three chapters and in a couple other places that are mentioned in the New Testament that Titus was very involved in the church uh, at Crete and that Titus was very loving to them and helped them to change who they were. Now, what we also learned in, in the kind of the first three weeks is the important to make how important it is to make proper preparations to live a life on purpose. The, the whole understanding of these four weeks of sermons is that we have been called to live our lives on purpose. Uh, God has a very specific purpose for you, just like he has a very specific purpose for me, and we are supposed to be living out that purpose. We get messed up sometimes because we think we know what the purpose of our life is. And we want to live out our purpose for our life. Whereas God says the purpose of your life may not be what you think, but it certainly is what I know and what I want it to be. 
Titus is a great understanding of that. I don't think within the realms of his thought process that Titus thought that he would enjoy or want to be a part of living in Crete and and, uh, helping the church in Crete. It wasn't on his radar, and it wasn't something that I think he was overly excited to do. And yet, because Paul asked him, and because he felt the calling of God on his life, it's exactly what he did. He wasn't in the easiest of circumstances, and yet Paul convinced him that if he would become a leader and live his life on purpose, that he could help change the church at Crete. We talked about conditions that prepare us for success and how good leaders are people who are really good servants. Um, you're, you're going to see a great example of that later on, and you'll hear about this probably at least a couple of times today. But today is a chance for us as a church to all be good leaders and to be good servants. For today, we will serve our community, and we will serve the the parents and the children of our community. We will dress up in funny costumes, and we will open the backs of our cars, and we will have cakewalks and bounce houses and all kinds of things as we celebrate Halloween this evening. Now, what's the purpose of doing that? Well, the purpose of doing that is because we can be a servant to our community. We can open up our area and let the community come to our area. Oh, I want your children to be here. Oh, I want you to be here. But I also want our community to be here because this is a chance for them to see us with our servant side put forward as we love on them and as we thank them and as we give them things. That's what we're called to do. That's what Titus was doing here at the Church of Crete. He was loving on them and he was saying, let me raise you up to be leaders in your church so then you can be leaders in the community where God has placed you. Well, we saw that in chapter 2. Last week we talked about how Titus urged them to practice self-control and how difficult self-control is. Self-control is mentioned five different times in in chapter 2 where Paul comes uh, to write this letter to Titus and says, you need to teach the church to be people of self-control. We all know how difficult it is sometimes to be people of self-control. It's very difficult for me even. And and everybody has their own little things where it's it's tough for them to practice self-control. I don't know how long the Bucky's gas stations have been in existence. Not that long because when I was growing up there, the only place I remember that we stopped every once in a while was Stucky's. Uh, it wasn't Bucky's, it was Stuckey's. I don't know how many of you remember Stuckey's. It's funny, I asked my, my dad one time when we would travel, I said, why do we always stop at Stuckey's, Dad? And he said, well, I have stock in Stuckey's. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. I didn't know what that meant, but um, I, it kind of helped me to understand why we stopped at Stuckey's. Well, Bucky's has been in existence about 10 years, and you can ask Laura, you know, self-control is not within my realm when I start seeing the Bucky signs. It doesn't matter if I need gas or don't need gas or anything else. I'm stopping there just because it's, it's such a fun place to be, and, and they, they have such good things to do, and they have such clean restrooms. I, I tell Laura I'm stopping there for her. So, uh, 
But that's, that's what we're supposed to do uh, in, in Titus in, in chapter 2. We, we've got to learn to put in, into place self-control. And what he's talking about there is controlling our actions and how we do things and how we go about living our, our lives. So this brings us to chapter 3, which is the conclusion of the letter that Paul's written to Titus. Titus. And Paul begins to wrap up with the understanding of because of how good God is, how, how gracious he's been, how overwhelmingly kind he has been, even to the point of offering us eternal life and salvation. Because of that, Paul says to Titus, practice good works and teach the church to practice good works. Listen, it's mentioned three times. Remember what I told you last week about self-control being mentioned five times? When it's mentioned that many times in one chapter, that's what they're trying to hammer home. Well, in Titus chapter 3, Paul has written this letter and he mentions three times, be about doing good works. In fact, I, I read to you what the, the, this version of the scripture, the Holman, says at the beginning of the chapter. It says the importance of good works. That's the headline of Titus chapter 3. So, so you, now you come to what, remember if, if you were here at, at the very first week, I said, you know, can anybody quote a verse out of Titus? That's really not, you know, the most quotable book in the Bible. And probably none of you have a verse memorized out of Titus. But I, I want you to look at verse 7. Well, let's back up to verse 6. It says, the Spirit he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So here's Paul writing Titus, and he says, listen, because we've been justified by his grace, in other words, you have come to salvation by grace and grace alone. There, there's nothing else that's going to justify your eternity. In fact, he says, look, he says, uh, so that having been justified by his grace, then we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So what Paul is saying to Titus is because of, of his grace and because that's what justifies you, then you have the opportunity to become heirs in eternal life, and, and you have the ability to inherit eternal life. Now, look at what verse 8 says, and I'm getting kind of ahead of myself, but that's okay. Look at what verse 8 says. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for anyone. That, that's kind of the anchor verse to me of all of Titus. If you were going to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 and say, boy, I, I, I want to pick out the anchor verse. To me, this is the anchor verse. Because Paul is talking about the trustworthiness, the grace of Christ, and what he did uh, to justify us. And it has nothing to do with what we did and everything to do with what Christ did, then he comes to this verse and he says, this is trustworthy. 
I love to say it like this. You can take that to the bank. What Jesus did for you on Calvary gives you the opportunity to be heirs of eternity. And you can take that to the bank. So good works is used in verse 1, verse 8, and verse 14. Over and over again, Paul is trying to help Titus to help the church at Crete understand the importance of good works. So let me read uh, the whole chapter. It's only 14 verses, so don't panic. But let me read the whole chapter of Titus chapter 3 to you. And then let me share with you three things really briefly that I think will hammer home the importance of us being uh, people who are about good works. So here, here we are, Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and, and to authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. There's the first one. To slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, captives of various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the goodness and love for man appeared from God our Savior, He saved us. Look at what it says. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Boy, this saying is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Eight. That's the second time. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, uh, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Titius, uh, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. And our people must also learn to devote themselves, third time, to good works for cases of urgent need so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are met with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Man, it's really a beautiful chapter in the scripture. It's one that really jumps out to me as Paul's heart uh, for the people of Crete and for his brother Titus, how he wants them to put into practice in this congregation uh, the love and good works. And what he does here is he kind of outlines what a church should be. In fact, if, if you look at, at verse uh, 2, it, he's... he's addressing to the church, look at what he says, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people, for we too were once, okay, so let's look at that, for we too were once. So what Paul is writing to Titus here is saying, 
this is what you need to stop because you're the church, and this is what you used to do because you weren't the church. So what is being said here is that if you're in the church, you're not supposed to slander anyone. You're, you're not supposed to be fighting. You're supposed to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. But listen, before you were the church, you used to be foolish. You used to be disobedient. You used to be deceived. You were captives of various passions and pleasures, living in malice. You were envious, hateful, and you detested one another. Do you see that difference that's going on there? That's what's showing. What, what Paul is saying to Titus is, look, this is how you looked before you were the church, and this is how you are supposed to look now. Now, what's frustrating, what's confusing, and it's confusing to us and it's confusing to the world, is that people look at us and they have a, a struggle differentiating the difference between us now and us before. Now, here, here's the good news. The good news is this has been a problem for 2,000 years. When, when Paul wrote this letter to Titus about the church at Crete, uh, he was describing the church back then, and he could have easily used the same terminology to describe the church today. And trust me, the Holy Spirit, and when he was guiding Paul to pen this letter and when the Lord chose to include this book in the scripture, he knew that the church was still going to struggle with this today. So the, the good news is this is a problem that's been going on and on uh, for generations. And the bad news is we're not supposed to be doing it. And we're supposed to be the ones that are breaking the cycle. So really my hope, and I hope your hope is, is that we can put into practice something that will help us break this cycle. So that when people look at our church, when people mention the name Holly Springs, they don't talk about people who slander or who are divisive or who talk in, 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 in rude terms or in bad ways or, or gossip or, or do the kinds of things that the scripture says that we're not supposed to be doing. That's what I want us to be known for. I mean, I want us to be known as Holly Springs. That's the church that, that loves people. That's the, that's the church that serves their community. That's the church where you can go when you're hurting and they'll try to help heal you. That's, that's the church where everyone is welcome. That's what the scripture is saying here. So how do we put those things into practice? How do we, how do we as a church practice being Dudley do-rights? Well, let me share with you three things. Three things that I think are pretty obvious here in the scripture. The first thing is this. We, we've got to learn to guard our mouth and our heart. You see, I, I think if you look in scripture, you'll find over and over again where the church gets into trouble is when they don't guard their mouth and their heart. This is what he's saying in, in, in verse 1 through 3. Listen, let me read it again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be ready to stand for every good work. So the, the, the first thing that Paul says to Titus to teach the church, 
church is, hey, you're supposed to be submissive to those people who are over you. And I think this takes on lots of forms and fashions. I think this means to our, our government officials, we're supposed to be submissive to them. We're supposed to listen to them and, and, and pray for them and, and realize that they, they have authority over us. And we get to help exercise our thought processes by going out and voting. Please, please, go vote. That's a God-given gift that you have been given. Many, many people do not have the opportunity that you and I have to vote for those who are in authority over us. But when they're placed in authority over us, our job is to pray for them, to love them, to care for them, to watch over them. I, I'll be honest with you, I, some of you will, <laughs> I hate saying that, but I'll be honest with you. I say that all the time, and then I go, why did I say that? Because it makes it sound like the last 30 minutes I've been lying to you, and I've not been lying to you. I promise. But I, I want you to hear my heart is what I'm trying to say when I say this. You are not walking scripturally. If when Barack Obama is your president, you don't pray for him. But when Trump is your president, you say, okay, I'll pray for him. That's not what Scripture calls you to do. Scripture calls you to pray for those and care for those who are in authority over you. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with what they're uh, teaching or preaching or, or laying down as laws for us. I understand that. You understand that. But there is no room in this Bible and there's no room in our walk to hate people. It's not. It's not what we're called to do. I, I, you know, when I see a headline where it says that the person who was mailing all the bombs last week was a Christian, I mean, that, that was the USA Today headline, that he was a, a church-going Christian. That, that's not true. His very lifestyle defined him as not Christian. The actions that he took defined him as not Christian. And yours and, and ours do too. And we tend to look at it, well, you know, I don't mail bombs, so I'm a, I'm a good Christian. But when's the last time you slandered somebody? I know that's, that hurts. Or when's the, the last time you weren't gentle or kind to somebody? I know that hurts too. But listen, this is, this is what the Lord has called us to do. We are to guard our mouth and our hearts. And, and when you look at Scripture, the way we do that is we need to be practicing being kind, gentle, avoiding fighting, and avoiding slander. That's what the Scripture tells us to do. We're, we're supposed to be truthful people. And Laura and I were driving to Dallas uh, Friday, and, and she, I don't know what she was studying or reading, somehow she, we got on the subject of truthfulness. And, and she said, 
<laughs> she said, what happens when you tell a lie? And she turned to me like that, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I said? I must have done something. I was trying to think of all the things I had said if I would lied sometime lately, and I couldn't think of anything. I said, is this a trick question? Are you trying to mess with me? And she said, no, no. She said, I was just doing some studying, and I, I do this with children all the time. And she, and she said, I just wanted to see what your answer was. And she said, so tell me what happens when you lie. And I was going to do this with you. I should do this with you. What, what happens when you lie? So think. You don't have to say this out loud. But what happens when you lie? Most of you probably said, well, you get in trouble. Right? I mean, that's what I said. I turned to Laura and I said, well, you get in trouble when you lie. And she said, that's what every kid says. Every kid says that. I said, what happens when you lie? I said, well, you get in trouble. And she said, and this is where her mind thinks so much more, and it's that counselor coming out, but you'll understand this when I She said, Bobby, it's not about getting in trouble when you lie. It's about you lose what honesty is. That's a big difference. When, when you begin to lose what honesty is, when you just move, you remember your mom and dad telling you this? When you, when you just move a little bit here, and then it takes you a little bit here. I can still remember my mom's distinctly telling me that it's once you start lying, it's hard to keep up with what the truth is. You understand that. Well, that's what Paul is saying here when he's writing Titus, when he's talking about be kind, be gentle, avoid fighting, uh, 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 avoid slander. If, if you do it once, it just makes it a little bit easier to do it the next time. If you do it the next time, it makes it a little bit easier to do it the next time. And before long, we're all standing out here in the halls and in, in the foyer of the church and everything else, and we're talking about everybody, talking about what we don't like about them, what, what, you know, what the struggle is, uh, what they said, what's mean, and we're doing it right here in the halls of the church. And Paul says, stop. It, he, here's something that I want us to all be able to put into practice is that when somebody wants to say something about somebody else, the first thing that ought to come out of your mouth and out of your mind and out of your heart, guarding your heart and your mouth, is let's pray for them. Because it's pretty hard to be ugly about somebody you're praying for. I, I love where it says stand, uh, or it doesn't say this in Scripture, but... I believe what it's teaching us in Scripture here is to stand at the ready to do good things. We, we ought to be at the ready to do good things. Uh, so I was coming back from Dallas, and I was driving my sister's stuff. We're, we're moving her here. And so I was in the truck by myself because Laura was with my sister, and they weren't with me. They still had some things to do. And at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, I turned to Laura and said, if I don't get out of here now, I'll never, I'll be stuck in Dallas for like five hours. I'm, I just, I've got to hook that trailer up and I've got to get going. And we were finished, but I didn't want to wait to do the last stuff, you know, all the last little stuff. So I closed that trailer and hooked up and Laura said, you go, you get out of here. And I did what most all of you do probably nowadays, especially not being, I, I mean, I'm, 
familiar with Dallas, but not super familiar. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I put up Google, and I put in my home address, and I said, get me home, Google. And so it took me, and I'll, I'll get this all, all wrong, but it took me, uh, my sister lives in Louisville, which is north of Dallas, kind of in the middle, and it started taking me across President George Bush Turnpike something way to the north. And I knew why it was doing that, because it didn't want to take me through downtown and all the traffic and all that kind of stuff. And so sure enough, man, I was cruising right along just the north of Dallas. I, I'd missed everything, and I'd kind of looked at the map, and I saw where it was going to bring me in about Forney. It was going to weave me around and bring me in about Forney, which I was really excited about because I knew that would still put Bucky's on the way home, and I would be able to stop at Bucky's. And so I was going, this is really cool. And really, the traffic wasn't bad at all, and I'd gotten all the way out there. And then it popped up with this thing that said, uh, do you want to take this route? It'll be seven minutes faster. And I went, well, yeah, seven minutes is seven minutes. So I clicked yes. And about four minutes later, I had exited the freeway, and I was driving in a neighborhood. And I, I was a... 18-foot trailer behind my truck, and I'm driving in a neighborhood, and little kids are riding bikes, and, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, and whatever lake that is, what lake is up northeast of Dallas? Anybody? Do what? No, it wasn't Red Oak. Ray Hubbard? That, that may have been it. I was, <laughs> I was on on the edge of Ray Hubbard. I mean, I was driving by Lake Holmes, and I was going, well, this is really pretty, but this is not where I want to be. I want to be on 80. And so finally, I, I drove all around, and it brought me out to 80, but it brought me out to the feeder road on 80. And Google said, turn left. And I, and you know, I'm thinking, I grew up in Houston where all the feeder roads are, you know, one way. But I looked at this feeder road a long time before I pulled out, and it had a big yellow stripe going down the middle of it. So I knew it was a two-way feeder road. And it, I wanted to go that way, so it made sense to me to turn left, and I figured there'd be an underpass that I could come up under, get on the freeway, and, and, and go home. So I turned left. And as I turned left, I, I started driving down this little bitty road, heading toward the feeder, I mean, on the feeder, heading toward what I hoped was under underpass to get over. And there was a big sign that said freeway ends in one mile. And I thought, it's okay. Surely Google would not send me down this road where the freeway ends in one mile without there being an underpass at about three quarters of a mile. So I just kept driving. And I was driving and I looked and all of a sudden right in front of me was an 18-wheeler stopped, and another big truck stopped, and about 20 other cars stopped. All of them just backed up, and all of them were trying to figure out how to turn around. I got so mad because Google had misled me and taken me where I didn't want to go. And I told Laura later, it's crazy how many people follow Google because there was literally 20 or 30 people down this road that were trying to beat the traffic. And I'm sure Google had said to them, turn left here and you'll be great. And so all of them whipped around and turned around. And you know who the only three people that were left on this little bitty feeder street 
the 18-wheeler, the big truck, and me pulling the trailer. And there was literally no room to turn around. I, I wasn't sure what to do. Finally, I'm, this, I have a four-wheel drive truck because it's cool to have a four-wheel drive truck. And that's the only reason I've ever had one. <laughs> I don't know that. But I thought, 14 years, I can push that button and it will go in four-wheel drive. And I pushed it and went into four-wheel drive and I was literally able to go off into the wet grass and turn and back and turn and back and turn my trailer around. And this is exactly what I thought. I, I finally got it all turned around. I finally got it all turned around. I was heading the right way, and everybody else, I guess, had kind of figured out not to come down this road anymore. There was nobody in front of me, and I thought, I can go. And I thought, what about that guy in the truck? What about those two guys, the, the, the big, big truck and the 18-wheel truck? And so as much as I wanted to go, I put my car in the park, and I got out, and I started walking back to those guys. Do you know who was driving the 18-wheel truck and the big truck? It was the Mesquite High School Band. And it was all their instruments in an 18-wheel truck and a big truck. And both these young guys that don't drive trucks very much had followed Google and gone down that way. And both of them were just about in tears. And I said, what, what are y'all going to do? And they said, we don't know. And I said, all right. I said, here's the plan. I'm going to go. I've got turnaround. I'm going to go, and I'm just going to make sure people don't come this way. And I said, it's a long ways. It's probably like three-quarters of a mile, but you can back all that way, and I'll just keep them away from you. And so that's what we did. So for the next hour, we just slowly backed those trucks up to where they got to a place where they could literally turn around and go. And after we stopped everything and they got all turned around, both those guys got out of their truck and came to me. I'd never met them before. And they both grabbed me and hugged me. Said, thank you for staying and thank you for helping us get out of this jam. Listen, if you look at verse 10 in Titus, it says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. What the scripture is telling us here is those of us who are in church are not supposed to be divided people. We're supposed to be people who stand ready and willing to help people. That's what I want us to be known for. That's what you want to be known for. You want to be known as the people who help people when they need it, when they most want it. That's the kind of people that we want to be. Listen, yesterday when, when I helped those guys back those trucks out, I wasn't a hero. I wasn't anybody special at all. You know, what? the only thing that I can attribute it to is God through the power of the Holy Spirit just pricked my heart and said, you need to help those people. What would you do if you were in that situation? Well, I thought immediately, if I was in that situation, I'd want somebody to help me. That's what believers do. That's what we're supposed to do. Listen, not only are we supposed to guard our mouth and our heart, but we're supposed to give of our time and, and our money too. Boy, that's, that goes over like a lead balloon when you're talking to the church. But listen, look at what it says in verse 12. It says, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, 
Make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So he's saying, hey, I'm going to send some people to you, then you can come see me. He's actually giving Titus a little bit of a break. He's saying, you deserve a break. You've worked really hard with the, the church at Creek. When, when I send these friends to come, you come and be with me for a while. And then he, he says, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Listen, <laughs> I wrote this down just because I thought it was funny. But Titus says to even help a lawyer. I mean, if, if we're going to help lawyers, then we just ought to help everybody. That's kind of the way I think about it. What, what he's saying here is these guys are going on missionary journeys. And he's saying to Titus, and he's saying to you and to me, when people do good things for the kingdom, our job is to help them. That's what it says. It, and, and he's not only talking about time. He's certainly talking about time. I think he's offering Titus a break of time here. Come, spend some time with me. But then he's also saying, help them financially. Right? Like I said, this is not a popular phrase to make in church, to help people financially. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to help people financially. Whenever they're doing anything, this is... This is the church's role in supporting missions. That's why when we prepare our budget for next year and we look at how God has blessed us this year, then we will look to say, how can we help people in missions? We want missions to be a big part of our budget because it's scriptural, not just because it's fun or not just because I love it. I get... <laughs> I get this every once in a while. Seriously. People come up to me and go, you're the pastor who loves missions. <laughs> yeah? Isn't that, shouldn't every pastor love missions? I, I get so confused. I mean, it's like coming up to me and saying, you're the guy that loves Laura, your wife. I want to go, yeah, I married her. That's, that makes sense. I love Laura. Sure. Well, if I'm, aren't we the church that loves missions? Aren't we the people who are called to do missions? How do you, that's our DNA. That's what makes us up. Listen, I don't want to be the church who loves smoke and fancy bands. And I, and I love Jason, and I love our worship. Don't, where are you, Jason? Sorry, I wasn't trying to nail you there. And Jason doesn't do smoke, so we're okay, all right? So, but as, as much as I want us to be a church of praise, because that's what the scripture calls us to, and as much as I want to be a church who shares the gospel, because that's what the scripture calls us to, I want to, the, the sidelight, it's, it's not the stepchild. Missions is not the stepchild. It's part of who we are. So heck yeah, I'm going to bug you for the rest of my days to go somewhere with me and to be on mission with me. Clint is getting ready to head uh, to the middle of Mexico. 
because we have missionaries who are in the middle of Mexico, and we want to take people to help them. Tiffany's mom and dad. Uh, the Chandler's daughter is in China. We, we want to take people to China. We, we have a missionaries that we support in Africa. You know about Jamaica and Ecuador already. Yeah, that's what we do. And today we'll do missions right here. We'll back up our cars and do missions. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's what the scripture calls us to do. And we've got to do it two ways, folks. We've got to do it with our time and we've got to do it with our money. That's how we do it. Third thing is, believe. Oh, I love this. If, if we're going to be people, if we're going to be people who do good works, then we have to believe in the trustworthy saying of God's word. Okay? Trustworthy. Worthy of trust. Listen, we are justified by His grace. I already shared that with you. Just going to hammer it home again. We're justified by His grace, not our works. But that's a, a trustworthy saying. That's what, that's what Paul says to Titus. You can, you can go to the bank on the fact that what Jesus did for you on the cross of Calvary will be your saving grace if you will just place your trust in Him. The Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. That's trustworthy. But because of that, then that should propel you and me to do incredibly good works. That's, that's what Paul is saying to Titus, and it's what I'm saying to you today. How can we be people of good works? And the way we can be people of good works is we can place our total trust and our total confidence in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And when you do that, then you can place your life into doing good works for Him. How do you trust the Father? I, I don't know. It, it's difficult. There's all different kinds of things throughout the Scripture. One of my favorite stories um, from reading books is uh, by an author named Francis Chan. And Francis Chan has written several different books. One's called Crazy Love. If you haven't read it, I would highly suggest you read it sometime, and you don't have to go buy it. I have copies in my office if, if you want to read it. Um, but Francis Chan tells, tells a story one day of he and his wife being out uh, in, the, in their front yard. And when they were in their front yard, they had one of those, they had a two-story home, and, and they had a little, I think he was a little six- or seven-year-old boy who had opened the window on the second floor and gotten out on the roof, and he'd come to the edge of the roof and yelled at his mom and dad, who were standing in front. Francis Chan and his wife were standing in front, didn't know their little boy had gotten out on the roof. And when he yelled, they looked up, and they saw their little six- or seven-year-old boy. He was standing on the roof, and he yelled down to his dad. He said, catch me. And his mom said, you get yourself back in that window right now and get off that roof. 
and his dad said, jump. And he was confused. And Francis Chan said he turned to his wife and said, look, this will be one of the greatest lessons he's learned in his young life. If he jumps and I catch him. And his wife said, you better catch him. <laughs> Francis Chan said, I'll catch him. So he turned back up to his little boy and he said, jump. And his little boy jumped and he came flying through the air. And Francis Chan said, I grabbed him and I hugged him. And he said, the first words that came out of my mouth were, you can always trust your father. Listen, you and I can jump. We can take chances. We can do incredible things for the kingdom. We can be people that aren't divisive. We can be people who love each other, talk well about each other, and do great things for the kingdom because our Father loves us and He'll catch us when we jump. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you just incredibly grateful for your saving grace and mercy in our lives. And God, we remind ourselves again of the gospel truth that we did nothing to earn our salvation. But God, we also are reminded that because of your great grace and mercy in our lives, you command us to do good works. And so, Father, we want to be a people that are going about doing good works for the kingdom. God, help us to guard our hearts and our mouths. Help us, Father, to live a life worthy of the trust that you gave us. God, as we enter into a time where we just reflect on what you've taught us today, either through the music or through the worship or through the giving of our tithes and offerings or through the word being open and the Holy Spirit speaking, God, we ask that you would help us to be pe people who are in tune with what you want us to do with our lives. Father, we thank you for your great trustworthiness. We pray all these things in the most powerful name, Jesus. Amen and amen.